Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we start with Jean Arp, unless we start with Hans Arp. My guest is Catherine Kraft, the curator of The Nature of Arp, which is at the Nashery Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 6th next year. The show is a retrospective of Arp, one of the most important artists of both the Dada and Surrealist movements. Arp investigated chance and spontaneity in his collage-based work, and the human form, abstraction, and the processes of nature in his sculpture. The exhibition at the Nasher features over 80 works from throughout his career. It's accompanied by a superb catalog that's published by the Nasher. On the second segment, I'll talk with curator and historian Jesse Centivan about Kay Sage. But first, Catherine Kraft, after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. American photographer Paul Sapoya's work challenges conventions in the genres of self-portraiture in the nude. On October 13th, hear him talk about the relationship between artist and subject, and discuss representation, nudity, and intimacy with New Yorker critic Hilton Alls. Get tickets and learn more about this free event at getty.edu slash 360. And we're back. Catherine Kraft, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I think the first piece in your show is from 1915, which is a big year in European history, the beginning of a year and a war that caused artists all over Europe and in the United States to rethink both the subject of their work and how they made work. In, in the United States, it's when artists really pivoted from addressing nature and landscape as the defining national subject of culture to, to industry. Art doesn't give up on nature quite so readily. So how does, how does the war impact ARP and, and his work? Well, as you said, our path is really quite different, and it really goes back to the time and the place of his birth. Arp was born in 1886 in Strasbourg, the capital of the region of Alsace. And about 15 years before his birth, Alsace had been lost by France. It had gone to Germany after the Franco-Prussian War. And it created a really stressful situation for the people living there. Arp was born technically a German citizen, but he spoke French at home with his family. He learned German in school. He spoke Alsatian dialect with his friends. And so he was fully bicultural or tricultural, if you include Alsace as a separate culture. And the very powers that basically went to war in 1914 were, in part, very much these two aspects of his identity. Arp has many wonderful stories about his early artistic life, but his story is that that when he heard war was declared, he was in Strasbourg. He had already been studying and working as an artist. He'd shown in France and Germany and in Switzerland. But when he heard war had been declared, he apparently got on the last train out of Strasbourg and went to Paris. And while he was there, he met Picasso, he met Apollinaire. He spent several months there, which sounded like he had a wonderful time until the French authorities said, excuse me, you're a German citizen. You should really not be here during wartime. And so he left France and rather than, well, basically to avoid the German draft, he went to Switzerland where his family had moved several years earlier. And while he was in Zurich, that's when he met a group of other artists and writers who had also 
gone to Switzerland, which was neutral, to get away from the war. And they founded a movement called Dada, which was very much against the war. And it took different forms. In Zurich, there was a lot of performance-based art, but also paintings and sculptures and sort of hybrid forms. Our preferred approach was really adopting a variety of different formats of works, including collages, ink drawings, eventually painted wood reliefs, even embroidered works and tapestries. Nothing that was sort of would be viewed as a conventional work of art. And among his deepest responses was the feeling that Western Europe's investment in rationality and reason and trying to control everything and also the kind of arrogance or ego that he felt was accompanied by that. He felt that was really one of the biggest problems that led into the war. And really, he was thinking about nature, I think, in terms of trying to find an alternative, trying to find another way to make art and be human and write poetry also. That was not about copying nature. It wasn't trying to dominate or apply a rational system to nature, but allowing nature's processes to suggest or inspire processes in his own work. We'll get to some specifics about how he did that in, in, in specific works in, in a moment. But before we do, I, I loved your description of how that moment of 1915 and indeed Arp's early life um, he's, he's 29 when the war breaks out, 28 when the war breaks out, requires a certain shape-shiftiness, a certain elision, a certain geopolitically required willingness to confuse and evade. And so there's this great <laughs> description on, 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 on page four of, of the catalog I want to read. For the first 40 years of his life, he was a German citizen. For the second 40 years, a French citizen. He was Hans in German and Jean in French, although many of his French friends still knew him as Hans. Jean became dominant during the rise of Nazism in the 1930s and persisted after World War II, although Arp switched between one name and the other, sometimes using Hans Jean Arp, depending on the context. It seems that Arp's kind of slipperiness about his name points to something that a lot of art historians sometimes resist, which is pointing to how biography impacts or might impact the work. Do you think that Arp's, that all of this geopolitical complication that he grew up literally in and then later around impacts the work? I definitely think it does. But I think in turn that Arp's own approach to his biography, and he wrote extensively about his life, I think his own approach also impacts and twists around what we know about his biography and his life. One of the things that you find that runs throughout his art, no matter the format or the medium, is, a, is an interest in a kind of contingency, like a work of art that isn't just a pure singular object that may depend on various conditions it can, that can be shown in different orientations or maybe change over time. And... That same thing is present, I think, in the way he views his life, that identity is also somewhat contingent. It depends on where you are and what's happening and who you're in contact with. One of my favorite objects in the show is a, a book of poems that are published in 1939, really on the brink of World War II, and at a time when he had shifted largely toward writing in French and being Jean rather than Hans, he published a book of poems in Paris called Mouchelin Scherme, Shells and Umbrellas, but it's a book of poems in German, and it's published by Hans Arp. You know, there's also a great relief example that you spotlight early in the catalog that kind of points to some of that intentional shiftiness you referenced. And I, I, I guess it kind of starts with a 1916 work called Plant Hammer. So how, what, does, um, <laughs> what does Arp do? What's the Jasper Johns line? Take an object, do something to it, and then do something else. So here's Arp doing this in 1916 in all kinds of devious ways. So what, what is this object and what does he do to it? The wood reliefs, which are probably the best-known works that Art made during the Dada period, were preceded by a group of ink drawings. That's the ink drawings, and there's one in the show, that 
sees him kind of trying out this new visual language. According to Arp, and again, a story told many years later, is that he was walking along the shores of a lake outside of Zurich and was looking at all this detritus cast up on the shore, like sticks and stems and weeds and things like that. And he started making drawings from them. And those drawings, he kept sort of just drawing the same motifs over and over and working with the fluidity of the ink. And that's really, he thought, where these kind of distinctive fluid forms really came from. And it's also out of those that he started making these wood reliefs. And I mean, reliefs are an old classical form, basically. But Arp would layer up components of wood that he would have a carpenter cut out for him. Actually, he started out having his brother cut out these pieces of wood, and they would be stacked or layered and screwed together. Initially, uh, they were screwed together from the front, and you can really see the screws in a couple of the works in the show. And then they would be painted. So to begin with, the objects themselves are really kind of in between sculpture and painting. Often when you see photographs of these works, they look like they're just sort of a flat, abstract composition. But as you move just a step to the side, they really emerge as this these uh, really chunky, prominent uh, physical objects on the wall. And in the case of Plant Hammer, which our boys talked about as his first relief, and it's certainly the earliest one that we have an exhibition history for. There's this sort of layering of sharp angled and curvilinear wooden forms that are stacked up on upon each other, I mean three layers, I believe if I'm recalling correctly, that seem to be the sort of hybrid object. And certainly the title also proposes this hybrid identity. Up at the top, there are angular forms that suggest perhaps a a hammer. And down at the bottom, there's this kind of tangle of curves that suggest a kind of plant or vegetal shapes. The, The great thing that's really difficult to see in reproduction, and that drove our publisher kind of crazy trying to do color corrections, is that the reliefs are painted. The paint on the reliefs don't necessarily follow the shapes, the cut shapes of the wood. So art may arbitrarily just kind of make a division in one of the cut relief forms, and part of it will be a sort of idiosyncratic pale pink, and the other will be kind of almost a burgundy red. And you, when you're looking at it dead on, you're not necessarily sure if you're seeing something that is one layer or two layers or three layers even. So there's a there's a kind of shiftiness, or what I was calling earlier, also a contingency to these kinds of really kind of undecidable objects. Plant Hammer is also a work that Arp exhibited in one state and then repainted. So the state it's in now, which features a lot of white, for example, is not how he he first exhibited it in 1918 or so. That's right, and that's. And that's one of the few documented examples where we see something that I think was more prevalent than people realize, that over the years, a number of these reliefs have been repainted, sometimes perhaps in in their original colors, which ARP would do to sort of freshen up their appearance. But also occasionally, as in the case of Plant Hammer, it looks like it's been painted in completely different colors. Plant Hammers at the Gementa Museum in The Hague, you mentioned that the reliefs are among ARP's best-known works in the U.S. The National Gallery and, and MoMA in New York pretty much always have theirs, theirs on view. And, and, I mean, they're also probably the easiest ARPs to, to, to install. You, you, you can put them on a wall. You don't have to have a case and a plexi box or anything. I keep using the word elision, the elision that we see in, in ARP's life and work, the, this kind of shape-shiftiness where he's repainting works and remaking works, changing the date on works. I mean, it all sounds very much like Dada. And you mentioned earlier that ARP was in Zurich during World War One, and that's, of course, where Dada emerges and in, in, in some ways emerges as a direct address of the war, as kind of the world's first anti-war movement. Do we know how central and fundamental ARP and his ideas were to the development of, of what we now call Dada, or is it all kind of lost in a fog of fogginess? I think 
ARP was very important to certain strands of data. I think if you look at data very closely, it becomes clear that it's, or as clear as you can get. I mean, data was really this wide-ranging, multimedia, multidisciplinary movement. And so I think, for example, the reliefs that he made, also the collages, were really important to the early development of Dada. And I think the fact also, as the war started to draw to an end and ARP and his work began to travel and circulate, it was really inspiring to Dada artists in other centers as well. So you see ARP and work by him in Berlin, for example. He found formed a great friendship with Kurt Schwitters in Hanover. I think they actually met in Berlin, but ARP apparently encouraged Schwitters to begin practicing collage. He wasn't able, I mean, this is another place where the political has an impact on ARP, that after, as the war came to an end and his friends started to leave Zurich, he could travel into Germany, but he wasn't allowed to go to France because he was still a German citizen, an, an enemy alien. And in fact, it wouldn't be until 1925 that he received permission to go back into France, and he desperately wanted to go to Paris. But what was able to go to Paris were some of his works, and especially the illustrations he did uh, and poetry that he did for Dada periodicals and books. There's lots of things that, that Dada was at or near the beginning of and, and, and places in which it had influence, and there's not time to talk about all of them, even though Arp was seemingly involved in almost all of them. So let's talk about chance. Like many Dadaists, Art Arp made work that foregrounded chance. How and in what work? Arp's association with chance in Dada comes largely through a group of collages that now carry the titles collage or squares arranged according to the laws of chance. And they present squares of paper, either cut or torn, that sit on a kind of odd angles, and they seem, the story has always been that they were just dropped at random and sort of glued down where they, where they landed. Arp also pursued chance uh, in his poetry at the time, choosing words at random from newspaper accounts and things like that. The interesting thing about the collages is that they actually weren't exhibited under titles associated with chance, or at least we haven't found any contemporary indication that these titles accompanied these objects. And ARP seems not to have really written about or talked about them in terms of chance until quite a bit later, around 1930, in which, or at a time when he introduced or really, I guess, reintroduced chance processes into his reliefs and collages. The idea, though, that you would have a work of art that the artist was not completely controlling, I think even if we don't have the contemporary evidence that ARP was really using chance methods during the Dada period, when you look at these collages, they certainly suggest an openness to a certain randomness, to relinquishing control, and doing so in a type of art, and this does kind of connect to the question of abstraction, a type of art that was comprised of geometric components and that had a look that was much more unsettled and unordered than what was being done in, in contemporary geometric abstraction. On the, on the eve of World War II, so many years later, I think it was 1938, ARP looked back at his early career, 1915, around then, and argued, essentially, that he was a pioneer of abstraction. Was he? I still think that he was. And the reason there's all these qualifiers is, again, a lot of the dates of these works that are associated with this moment are a little bit hard to pin down. Especially because ARP kind of made them hard to be <laughs> to pin down. <laughs> exactly. But, but they are also hard to pin down for the reasons lots of other artists, lots of work from this time, have the same problem that, you know, maybe they don't have, maybe there's not a firm exhibition rec record. Or maybe there's, you know, there aren't, if, if something isn't published or exhibited, basically at the moment that it's made, then everything else is just trying to figure out who's 
who you believe. I think even if you push the dates forward, and not radically, I think in most cases, you know, works that he's dating to say 1915 or are perhaps, you know, maybe 1917, 1918, I think there's still something important about them because at the time they were made, I think ARP was willing to present them as more or less detached from a lot of the spiritual kind of concerns that was still then really associated with abstraction. And that even goes back to that earliest work in the show, the 1915 collage, which is a, a cubist collage, and it's really, or it plays off of cubism. But unlike the cubists, ARP's collages of this sort, which are really kind of before Dada, they don't pretend to be a portrait or a still life or a landscape. They just are what they are. And I think that element is really quite important and interesting for that time period. Yeah, when I read the catalog, I kept thinking over and over again about how in France, Matisse and Picasso walked up to the line of abstraction or not, and then decided it was a step too far and consciously and intentionally turned back. I'm not as strong on my Russian art history, but I think that happens a little bit there too. And and how Arp wasn't worried about that at all. He just plunged through. And, and that seems to me like a meaningful difference. So let's talk a bit about how how art moves forward in, in, in sculpture in ways that, that really both embrace abstraction in ways we've been talking about, but that are also grounded in natural processes in the way we talked about at the start of the show. You note in your in your catalog essay, which is which is really good, that unlike a lot of the surrealists, and of course ARP, like so many of the Dadaists, kind of dance back and forth between the two camps, the definitions. I mean, there's a whole historiographical mess about the, about the line and the fuzziness between the Dadaists and the surrealists. But unlike a lot of the surrealists, whose whose very male point of view was famously outré and often violent. ARP was more interested in growth and what might be a more biological, my word, not yours, form of perpetuation and reproduction. Do you have a couple of favorite works that, you know, in which that idea manifests itself? Oh, there are a lot in the show. One that I would just choose, it's a particular favorite of mine, and it's actually the cover of the catalog as uh, three disagreeable objects on a face, which is one of the most surrealist titles I can think of. But the sculpture comes from around 1930, which is very early on in Arp's turn to sculpture in the round. He's working largely in plaster, and it's actually a period that I would still like to do more work on because I'm still not entirely satisfied with various explanations of why ARP began to make sculpture around this period and a bit later. But to go back to the work in question, it's comprised of four plaster elements, one of which, the so-called face, is this, it's about the size of a large cat, if the cat curled up, or it's the size of a sort of flattened and enlarged head. And it sits on really a kind of tabletop surface and it is like a sort of undulating landscape if you just see it by itself. It has sort of, it sort of rises at one end and slopes down in the middle and curves up a little bit on the other side. And then atop it are placed three objects which would have been initially able to be moved by the spectator. <laughs> they are called, uh, you know, they, these are supposedly three objects, again, named probably later. According to Arp, he had a dream in which he awoke with disagreeable objects on his face. They were a large fly, a little mandolin, and a mustache. And the three objects are uh, largely, uh, the, the three objects you can kind of identify which ones are which, and they sit atop this uh, this form. On the one hand, the three elements, if you look at them, you can, if you look at these elements, they do have a certain family resemblance to the shapes of the wood reliefs. I mean, you see mustaches in the wood reliefs, you see flies, you 
you, I don't think you see mandolins, but you see forms that are like mandolins. They're vases or torsos. But each of these are about a handheld size. And I think among the earliest works that Art made, he talked later about sitting on the shores of a lake and stacking pebbles on top of each other. So there's this element of play, but there's also sort of subversive element really in two senses. One is that initially you're inviting somebody else to play with the sculpture and move things around on it. Uh, The second aspect of it, which is really one of the more subversive things about art sculpture, is that the sculpture has this kind of horizontal orientation. I mean, it not only is rejecting a pedestal, which other sculptures at this period, especially Giacometti, are doing, but it has this kind of horizontal address. The the bottom element especially kind of rises and falls in ways that suggest a landscape and and also the way the viewer kind of positions herself above it also has that kind of you're not looking up at a monolith or a, or a monument. You're really encountering something that's sort of lower than you are physically. So that's one that's one sculpture I would point to. Uh, another wonderful work that I think really exemplifies this from slightly later, it's from 38, it's called Growth. And the version of it that we have is from the Guggenheim. And it's this really intensely cantilevered, lurching upward series of units or modules, some of which are kind of the shape of like a football or this form that Arp calls in other works a bud. I mean, football-shaped or teardrop-shaped is about the best visual description I could give. But these forms are sort of joined together. The way Arp would work is he would work mainly in plaster, and he would use supports or or internal armatures to kind of direct these forms, be able to join them together. But he often said that the most important aspect of making a sculpture was not so much this construction of the overall form, but all the filing and sanding that took place afterwards. Arp would spend, I think, hours and days making the surfaces of his sculptures incredibly smooth. One of the reasons for this, I think, is to create this experience, this potential experience for the observer, that as you move around the sculpture, it seems to change in ways that you don't expect. And because of the subtlety of the way that the surface has been treated, you're not even aware or you're almost unaware of the transition from one point to the next. So a work like growth... On the one hand, you know, it, it kind of says what it's about, but it's also a growth that is, I think, not sentimental or natural in a sort of beautiful way. There's something very ungainly and awkward about it, like the way a plant will grow in all kinds of strange ways if it's impeded from reaching the light. There's an element of the unexpected, I think, in his sculpture that is very much an aspect of his attitude to nature. There's a form that Arp works with in these years that is more recognizable and that is really important to him. He stays engaged with it for a very long time, and that's the torso. Why was the torso as a form or as an idea so important to him? That's a really good question. And in fact, in the time that I worked on this exhibition, which developed over a few years, there was a time when I thought about just making the show all torsos. <laughs> Because it's so prevalent. And uh, I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. You know, a torso is a body without a head. And the head is sort of the seat of reason and intellect and thinking. So in a way, the torso is kind of as close as we personally get to nature physically. Traditionally, the torso is also a subject in classical art. And it is, on the one hand, speaking to some kind of calamity or disaster. You know, usually we end up with torsos because things have been broken in some act of violence or by falling off a pedestal or all kinds of natural and political events can lead to the creation of a torso. And I think that's one of the things that attracted Arp to it, that it had, that this motif, on the one hand, had this kind of play between culture and nature. And 
on the other, if you look across his body of work, I think he was also very interested in taking this kind of shiftiness that you've mentioned into other aspects of language and representation and subject matter, because sometimes a torso in the the reliefs as well as the sculpture, a torso may be a torso, but it may also be a vase or an amphora, or it may be a chair, or it may be a nose. Matisse and Picasso did both of those things with torsos, so... Right, exactly, exactly. So I think that's one of the most appealing, you know, that's a, that's another appealing factor to him, that it has this kind of flexibility. And I think also, you know, there's a tendency to look at these torsos, especially when art begins to make sculpture in the round, and think of fecundity and the female body and you know, pregnancy. But I'm not always convinced that that's what ARP intended because there's a number of photographs and they're not artworks by any means. They're just basically uh, vacation photographs and joke photographs that, that show ARP in a swimsuit usually with, you know, kind of a midlife thick waisted body that you know, many of us do. Going to the gym was not a thing in ARP's life. And there's in fact one wonderful photo that uh, shows nothing but ARP's torso, just his midsection and belly bare and the shadow of a pointing finger that is pointing at his navel. And that's you know, definitely not the torso of uh, a woman about to give birth. It's the torso of a middle-aged artist. So I think the torso is something that appealed to ARP over many different categories. I mentioned Matisse and Picasso and the torso form. They mostly did it in painting. I, I, I can think of very few early to mid 20th century sculptures who were engaged with painting less than Arp. He, he, he made paintings from, you know, in his, in his 20s from 1907 until 1913 or so, although I'm not sure any have survived. He, he destroyed a lot of his own work. Am, am I thinking, is that a correct thought? Is he as disengaged from painting as I think he was? I started out thinking that as well. But I really think from what I've, I really think from what I've learned from just looking at the work and also from talking to other scholars and writers, including one of the authors in the catalog, Tessa Panis Pollock, has written about a group of reliefs from the 1920s that are actually reliefs in the merest, slightest sense of the word. They're made from cardboard that have just apertures cut in the cardboards. And a number of the, she argues, I think, pretty convincingly that ARP's reliefs of this sort, but others, other types as well, really are engaging with questions of painting and really critiquing painting in several in several different ways. And for this and by the same token the embroideries and tapestries that Arp was making and having made during the Dada years were also implicitly critiques of painting because they were turning to you know what what had traditionally been seen as handcraft during the 1920s especially when he was associated with the surrealists they in particular I think thought of his reliefs as a kind of form of painting and in fact that's where Arp ends up being discussed by Andre Breton in surrealism and painting finally one of the things I I thought was really interesting about the checklist for the show we're recording this uh, just as the show is opening, more or less. So it's not unusual that the works an artist makes late in, in his or her life are, are less known. Museums often think they're chest-beating by showing the early stuff, of course. And I noticed that about 20% of your show is from about the last 20% of Arp's life. So you're, you're, pretty, you're, you're playing pretty true to his life and, and career arc. So in those late years, he's extending some of his interests, such as in torsos, but there are also some new forms. Um, he plays with negative space sort of for the first time in, 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 in some works. What in the last years held your attention? Yeah, I think in his, you know, after World War II, you know, Arp lived and worked for another 20 years. And I think one of the things that attracted my attention to the work well, I'll be very candid here, which is one of the 
one of the reasons for doing the show, one of the inspirations for the exhibition was the Nasher collection itself. The Nasher owns Torso with Buds, which is a 1961 bronze, and it's actually the founding work of Raymond and Patsy Nasher's collection. Uh, Patsy Nasher bought it for her husband, Ray, in 1967 as a birthday present, and that became kind of the impetus to uh, create a collection of modern and contemporary sculpture that is this museum's uh, permanent collection today. Pretty curious about you know what other works were being made during that period. I've also done a lot of work as an historian on this period. I kind of got to Dada through an interest in so-called neo-Dada, which is a phenomenon of the late 50s and early 60s. And one of the things I found that was really interesting to me is that artists like that you wouldn't expect, like Ellsworth Kelly or Donald Judd, were really interested in ARP's work, and it was really important for them. But you asked about ARP's work itself. I think one of the things I saw is that he was still continually exploring new types of work. In his sculptures, he finally had the opportunity to begin casting his earlier plasters in bronze and having them carved in marble. I think to some extent represented a kind of re-engagement with sculpture that was also inspiring what he was doing in his contemporary work. One of the things you see after the war is this new way of making sculpture, which is which for ARP really involved cutting into plaster casts of existing works, like duplicate casts of other sculptures. He had done that a little bit in the late 1930s, but in after the war, it becomes much more pronounced and really much more visible. There's a wonderful later sculpture in the current exhibition called Daphne, which is formed primarily by slicing through the cast of a sculpture made just a couple of years earlier called Ptolemy. So I think there's still something in art at that point that's still very active creatively. He made a lot of work during that period. One still has to be selective about it. But I think also in the area of his collages, there's a number of really wonderful and interesting collages made during this period as well. In fact, I think sometime, someday, it would be great to see a smaller show of Arp's late work, because I think there is there is a kind of Spätstil, late style, in the sense of that Adorno's sense of that phrase, is something that's a little strange and a little exaggerated and a bit odd that I think is really int- would be really worth exploring at another time. I'm glad you mentioned Daphne. That's, that's one of my my favorite works in the show. Torso with Buds, obviously the title. This is a 1961 work. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. The title obviously refers to both the human form, but also to to, to plants, buds. And there, there appear to be kind of bud-like forms on the sculpture. Daphne, of course, uh, the ancient Greek myth, Daphne transforms herself into a laurel tree. In an, I think it's a laurel tree. In an effort to escape from Apollo's rapiness, and in in Arp's sculpture, there's both a, uh, you know, you kind of feel a branch of a tree there, but you can also find a torso there. And so here he is in 1955 engaging those ideas, those those classical ideas in, in sort of abstract ways, very much on his terms, as he'd been doing for a long time. Yeah, and I think in that work especially, he does it in a way that's especially true to Arp and kind of the way his mind works because, you know, Daphne is sort of the metamorphosis par excellence in in history and for an artist so concerned with metamorphosis. It's wonderful to me, though, that he chooses to show this a representation of this figure that is made by truncating another figure. It's like something's been like really cut through as if something's been removed by you know, Daphne is transformed into a tree maybe by splitting off the human side of her of her person. There's 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 a there's something in the sculpture that speaks to a real sense of loss. Yeah, it's a pretty great piece. Catherine Kraft, thanks so much for speaking with me. Tyler, thanks so much for inviting me to this conversation.
Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery. A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery, all at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a WEX Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is curator and art historian Jesse Centivan. She joins me to discuss two K-Sage-related projects landing this season. Centivan is the editor of the K-Sage Catalog Resume, newly out from Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for $100, about 35% off. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. And Centivan has also curated K-Sage Serene Surrealist, an exhibition at the Williams College Museum of Art, that recreates Sage's inaugural 1950 exhibition with the Catherine Viviano Gallery in New York. That shows on view through January 13th, 2019. Jesse Senevan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, Tyler. Uh, thank you so much for having me here today. I am a big K-Sage nut, and I'm long and absolutely puzzled that Sage, who was not unknown in her own time, I mean, she showed with Pierre Matisse for Pete's sake, has kind of fallen outside of art historical and curatorial attention with maybe one or two exceptions in the last few decades. And, and, and that's true, even though there's been this enormous resurgence in the last five or so years of interest in 19th and 20th century women artists. Any guesses or thoughts as to why interest in her seems not to be where it ought? I think a lot of it has to do actually with her overall output. It's relatively small roughly about 230 works total. And about half of them ended up in public collections. And so while museums may have a singular work, they don't have necessarily um, a pocket of works to show in context together. And a lot of the other works are in private hands and rarely seen, and they rarely come up at auction. And so I think 
I don't like to say that the art market drives a lot of an artist's recognition, but perhaps in this case it may. It's just that there is not much artwork out there. And, and, and often in recent years, as the work has come up, it's institutions such as the Mint in Charlotte that have pounced. So there's awareness, but maybe not yet at the you know, survey enabling level. So let's start in the catalog resume. I want to start with three paintings that Sage finishes in 37. I think a couple of them are dated 36, 37. And, that, and these are three paintings that she makes just before she takes off and makes the paintings we recognize as, as being kind of her mature, hyperreal slash surreal, uh, surrealistic style. Of course, surrealism originally meant hyperrealism, but that's a whole other story. One, <laughs> one is a little-known work at the Hirshhorn, um, a, a well-known collection. This is a work that I've never seen. Um, it's, a, it's a painting that recalls Jean Elion and that kind of makes a passing reference to Brock's Faubois. The next is a Mirandi-esque still life that's in a private collection. And then the next, I mean, it's kind of amazing, these three are back to back to back, is a De Chirico-like stack of round forms next to a De Chirico-like wall. It's also in a private collection. And then all of a sudden we get a painting called Monolith, which is now at the Albany Institute, which seems to be a kind of a rival at her, or at the beginnings anyway, of her mature style. What is going on in 1937? Are those four paintings kind of the run-up and the takeoff? I would agree that is the case. In the catalog raisonne, it was difficult to decide on a starting point. And as you'll notice in the catalog raisonne, there is a section devoted to um, more academic works. Um, it's just that she did many work. Um, she painted a lot of portraits for family members and gave them as gifts. So it would have been... The number is unknown of those academic works, and also it would be extremely tricky to track all of them down. So we decided that in, in this catalog raisonne, we were going to start with her more mature work. And it's really, really interesting to see these early works that denote this shift from this more academic landscape, direct landscape and portraits to these more interesting geometric forms. And I think she's she's just really experimenting more with the paint handling, as well as possibly looking at some vortices, origins, perhaps. But you'll see, I'm thinking you're referring to the work that's sometimes called baskets. And so, you know, there's, all, there's also these really wonderful sketchbooks that were done. And so you can see her actually just studying these forms so intently. And that, that's what's translating into these paintings. I think it's just this really close study that she's making. Even with Monolith, as you mentioned, she's actually looking at Heinz Heng's work directly there. And so it's, uh, it's really interesting to see just this progression and where she started from, because this is pretty unfamiliar to most folks. It was unfamiliar to me. But Monolith definitely arrives with, uh, you know, looking backward from, from the present with, with familiarity. There is um, a landscape reference, this kind of horizontal horizon line off in, in the distance and, and a suggestion of, of drapery, which is something that is in textile or drapery, you know, uh, uh, textile wrapped around an object or, or pseudo figure, which reads as drapery. I'm actually really glad that you mentioned drapery as an element, because for me personally, working on the catalog raisonne, it's so interesting just to see the progression of drapery alone in her work. If you notice in that uh, more historical works section, at the end, there are some really beautiful interior studies that are done. And the drapery is flawless in those. And it obviously is a realistic um, representation of the drapery. But then the drapery goes on to morph into these interesting shapes and then forms even into her mature work and then into her later works. It's that the drapery is really one of my favorite forms to, to look at. So we'll try to have images of a couple of these mid-1920s interiors. What jumped out about them to me, even before you pointed out the drapery, as, as you know, these as being kind of a source for the drapery that would continue in the work for, for a very long time, is that these are pretty washed out 
paintings coloristically, but the drapery, big, thundering, loud primary colors, the thing that she wants you to look at in these paintings. Do you have a guess or indeed knowledge of why drapery and flowing, hanging, draping textiles interested her not just in 1925, but in like 1955? <laughs> I mean, it stays. I don't know what her particular interest is in the drapery, but it is fascinating to see how this very specific element carries through her entire body of work, especially in the paintings. Well, in in the collages as well, there are definitely cutouts of drapery-like forms in them as well. I can't speak to actually what her very specific fascination is with the drapery, but I find it very intriguing how it stuck with her through time. There are a couple other things that really stick with her. Two in particular I wanted to reference. One is is or are uh, these kind of oviforms, these kind of round, not quite egg-like because the proportions aren't quite right and they're not perfectly oval, but they seem to come in also in 1937 in a painting titled Figure, and they linger a good bit in, in sometimes as a whole oviform, sometimes as just half of one. Any idea on where they came from and what informed them? Actually, she did have a fascination with eggs. <laughs> she would keep baskets of China eggs in her house. And I think it was... I'm sorry, China I, eggs? Yes, like, yes. Like porcelain or... Mm-hmm. But she would have baskets of decorative eggs um, around the house. Just thinking about her artwork for me personally, I think she referred to common objects often in her artwork especially in these early or these uh, mid to late 30s works that you're referring to, especially the world is blue. Uh, my room has two doors. You're absolutely seeing these egg forms and they're almost moving throughout space in a sense. And then she goes on even in the early 40s to go up and create the minutes series drawings which also has this evolution of the egg as well. She's creating, she, it was actually intended to be a book project. And so she created these beautiful, intricate architectural drawings that represent the life cycle in 24 hours. So there are 24 drawings. The other thing that gets into the work and then once it's in the work, boy, does it stay there, is the sense of landscape, the sense of horizon line, the dominance uh, or the commanding dominance of of this canvas-wide horizontal she uses. So there's obviously some of that in uh, a range of Europe, you know, in, in many, in the work of many European surrealist painters. Is that where Sage gets it from, or is she interested in the American landscape tradition, which isn't particularly big on the horizon line, it must be said, or something else entirely? I think she does have interest in the landscape um, based on, again, some of her early works, very early works. There's a lot of Claude in some of those 1920s paintings. Mm-hmm. However, I really think she's under the influence of both de Curico and Tanguy. She's definitely looking at the other surrealist works. But I, I think what's special about her specifically is that she's worked straight through them to develop her own surrealist iconography. I mean, she's definitely referencing other artists, but she's doing it in her own way. Well, speaking of other, other artists, I know for obvious reasons that the Tangi thing comes up a lot. They were married. But one of the references that pops up a, a good bit. I mean, there are a lot of references. I mean, everybody from Barbara Hepworth to um, to Max Ernst. And one of the paintings I wanted to bring up was a painting called I Have No Shadow from 1940. And for me, it's a good example of how she takes something from Ernst, the forest, and makes it her own. What What is this painting? What is in the middle distance? And was she interested in Ernst? She was definitely interested in Ernst. That's an excellent observation. She's also really looking at Jakiriko again here. The shadow that fills the foreground. And so very, very specifically, actually, one of Sage's uh, close friends, James Thrall Sobey, he actually acquired Jakiriko's um, Melancholy of Departure, 
um, from Pierre Matisse. She is actually referencing a really um, very specific portion of that painting in I Have No Shadow. Although her skies are definitely different than his. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Her skies are remarkable in person. I have to comment on that. <laughs> I have never seen an artist so masterful at paint handling. <laughs> they're, they're kind of dystopian without being threatening. You know, they're, they're kind of end timesy. I mean, this is 1940. War is underway. But I mean, those skies kind of stay that way for, for, you know, before the war and then after the war. Absolutely. Um, I think that is also a very signature trademark of her artwork. Those beautiful skies that are almost translucent in a, in a sense. There's a terrific sky and transition in, in what for me is, is one of her best and probably most famous paintings, Danger, Construction Ahead, another 1940 painting. This one's at Yale. The, the sky appears to be bluish, becoming blue on, on the left. It is threatening on the right. The landscape uh, in the painting, we'll have an image of this on manpodcast.com, of course, references both kind of the mesa-filled American Southwest, and then there's a little piece of imagined landscape. I mean, you know, it it's, doesn't look landscapey, but th that's how it reads. On the left, reaching across and seeming to to point to and and kind of overlap with the landscape on the right. It's really easy to read this as a painting about the world in 1940. Is that what she's doing? I would say so. She, I don't know how specifically she allowed that to infiltrate her work, but I think it's really interesting your observation about the Southwest because she was in Reno um, around that time um, to marry Tongi. And so I, I think she really, she's looking very closely at her, her surroundings um, physically. And she's got to be thinking about 19th century American painting with that sky because 19th century American painter after 19th century American painter in 1859 and 1860 and 1861 uses storms to reference the coming calamity. And indeed, even in 1836, Thomas Cole uses a constable-derived thunderstorm to reference what he, what he bemoaned as the destruction of what he believed was American wilderness. So she must know all that and must be referencing it and using it to to be nervous and concerned about where the world is going, where World War II is going. Yes, I would agree with that. I believe there is some influence of that in her work, um, especially because she knows very intimately what's happening. She's actually helping to bring a lot of the European surrealists to the States at this time. Let's switch to the show at Williams. I mean, you know, these these paintings are obviously going to be in the in the catalog resume, but just in terms of orientation, the show at Williams is uh, a recreation of a particular gallery show that Sage had. Uh, what is that show, and why did you want to recreate it? So the exhibition you're referring to was Sage's first solo exhibition with the Catherine Viviano Gallery in 1950. But let me clarify, she had shown um, in other solo exhibitions before this. In, in both New York and L.A. and yeah. Correct. Correct. Uh, but this was her first show with Viviano, which resulted in a very long artist-dealer partnership leading up until Sage's death. Why did I want to create this show? I'm always very interested in a specific moment in time. And one of um, the curators asked me, what would a show of Sage's work look like? And I thought a lot about this question because I knew that I wanted to use our WICMA's um, own work, page 49, um, in the exhibition. But how was I going to branch out from there? And so an interesting fact is that Page 49, the painting, takes its name from the page number uh, an article appeared on in Time magazine in 1950, and Sage was so pleased with her interview that she titled the painting Page 49. And so right there, I knew that was that was sort of my indicator. Um, and so the show itself, K-Sage Serene Surrealist, also takes its name from the title of the article in Time Magazine, Serene Surrealist. So we're, we're really, really looking at a very, very, very specific moment. 
And so from there, uh, we built out the exhibition, which involved 11 loans from private collectors and museums. No small feat, I have to say. (laughs) Very tricky bringing them all back together again. Because of my work on the catalog Raisonne, I indirectly, I wanted to expose what it meant to be able to locate and bring together these 12 paintings again for the first time in over 65 years. And so that, that to me was a really important part about this show. Additionally, I wanted to sort of harken back to what it would have looked like in 1950. Um, And so the space actually is very clean. We do not have extended labels um, in the show. I I really want people to look at her artwork and see this, this period of paintings made between 1947 and 1950, because I do feel that it's a really um, pivotal moment for her. And just with these 12 paintings, you can see exactly where the artwork is going. Yeah, you, 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 you can. And before uh, I ask about that, just a nerd note, two nerd notes related to this painting. Listeners in the East, particular East Coast of America particularly, have, have probably seen this painting at Williams. It's been on view a lot. In 1959, it was featured in, in the New York Times with an Aline Saarinen story or article. There was no exhibition in 1959. I suppose it was probably advancing a 1960 show at Viviano. But this is one of, this is surely one of, one of the better known mid-career sages. And it features uh, indeed a bit of textile or drapery that we mentioned, um, that we talked about earlier. But all of these paintings, pretty much all of these paintings that are up at Williams feature forms that read as construction in process, rebuilding, and sometimes construction not going so well. I, I can think of I, I can think of what was going on in the world in 1950 and think about why some of those things might have been interesting to her. But why why was she interested in in building in 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 riffing on construction? I think she liked the construction and deconstruction. Her artwork is very architectural in a sense. It can have very hard lines, whether it's the early roads um, or the horizon line that you'll see in her work. Here she's beginning to riff off the ideas of construction, but also deconstruction. So it's really this transposition or rearrangement of real forms, because in an artwork like The Instant, owned by the Mattituck Museum, it looks like a mountain in a sense, but when you take a really close look at it, I think one reviewer might have said that it had dinner napkins and dismantled machinery as part of it. And so I think she's really trying to dig into what's inside. Sage dies in, in 1963. We'll get to that in a minute. Between 58 and 63. So really not long after this important Viviano show that you're recreating. And then in the last five years of Sage's life, she doesn't make a lot of work. I mean, the sum, but but not very much. Why not? So for how very specific Sage is in her artwork, and you'll notice this if you're looking at a painting in person, the craftsmanship. She is just a master of the craft of painting. And so in the late 50s, her health declined. And so she was plagued by cataracts and her eyesight began to fail. And she just did not feel that she was up to snuff to create these beautiful paintings or do the intricate collaging. And so she changes to a different medium because she still needs a creative output. And this body of work you're referring to are these really beautiful object collages. And she's using household elements, and she's actually uh, arranging them on boards. They're glued down. Some of them actually have some movement, recalling perhaps some Cornell-like boxes. And so they're just a really beautiful body of work because some of them are able to be manipulated as such. And she goes on to exhibit these also with Viviano. And um, one of the works goes on into one of um, Whitney's biennials. You mentioned Sage's infirmity. Um, She commits suicide. She shoots herself in January of 1963. And her suicide note, which is reproduced in the CR, 
explains kind of just what you just explained. Um, her suicide note in its entirety reads, The End of Useless Light. So it's not in the work, but I, I want to address it because I think it's kind of a, an important thing, American art historically. Her estate was was, was handled by Pierre Matisse. And and Matisse does a couple of, of things that I think are, are worth noting. They're, they're important legacies. One is the dispersal of some of Sage's work. Um, how was that done? And secondly, what does the estate leave MoMA and why is that significant? Yeah, she was very specific in her will. All the versions, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there are multiple uh, multiple versions, so I I'm not. Let me back up just a little bit. So this this suicide uh, in 1963 is actually a, a second. She attempted suicide in the late 50s, but was unsuccessful. So she she was quite devastated after Tongi's sudden death in um, 1955, and. Although they could have had a tumultuous relationship overall, she was devoted to him and was just very upset to go on without him. But it's interesting in her her will, as you mentioned, um, the dispersal of the artwork, uh, she still retained a number of pieces in her private collection. And also not just artworks by her, but also Tongi and other surrealists. And so... She would like uh, all of these works to be dispersed to museums in the United States, uh, with the exception of a few gifts to private individuals who were friends of hers. And so um, Pierre Matisse uh, goes on to um, enlist the assistance of James Thrall Sobey. Sobey is a trustee of MoMA and a good friend of Sage, and he uh, helps to um, disperse these works in public collections. Uh, there are very interesting records of his actually at the uh, MoMA archives um, talking about all of this. I think that is also how MoMA becomes um, one of the central repositories. Sage did have um, a great affinity for the museum, and they were the recipients of some really very important pieces of artwork from her collection, uh, as well as a very generous monetary gift that went on to buy several artworks for them. Yeah, the total sum she gave MoMA was $105,000 for the purchase of contemporary art. And at the time, the time being 60, the mid-1960s, it was the largest unrestricted gift ever made to the museum for the purchase of the art of the present. Yes. Jesse Senevan, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.